Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name's Taylor Reevely. Often I'm here serving with a guitar um, and have been actually recently asked to lead our church's effort to plant a new church in Oregon City. And so my family and I live there, and it's good to be across the river here with you this morning. We're continuing our sermon series on our spiritual dynamic here at New Life Church. And this morning, one of the things we will address, or the thing we will address, is mission. We are missionaries and live on mission here with Jesus. And uh, one of the things you might have grabbed or have seen recently is one of these booklets, and it basically just describes what life at New Life Church is about, our our identity, um, what we do, what we value. And if you flip through there, you turn to this page, it says, the gospel moves us to mission. And if you're like me, you think, oh, great. Yeah, I know. Okay, I know I've got to step it up in that area. I know I need to try harder and do better and work a little harder. And If you're like me, those thoughts are not restricted just to this idea of being a missionary but you're tempted to think those kind of thoughts all along your life as a Christian. As you parent, I've got to do better and try harder. As you read your Bible, I've got to do better and try harder. And so we start trying to do more and more and more and be better and better and better. And that is a human dynamic. In fact, some people call that behavior modification. And really, this human dynamic, it lacks the dynamism or the power to produce the fruit that you're hoping for. That human dynamic of do better and try harder is rooted in an unbelief that we are in fact new creations, that we have been made alive, fully alive in Christ. It's rooted in the do, do, do of religion instead of in the done of the gospel. It's rooted in a belief that I have a lot of Christ and I have to show up and work instead of all I have is Christ, as you just say. When the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. He is speaking not of a human dynamic, but of a spiritual dynamic. He's speaking of real, genuine power for living life as a saved person. And that power comes through belief in the gospel. You could summarize the spiritual dynamic here at New Life Church in this way. Constant belief in the gospel produces in us the kind of life, the kind of church, and the change in the world that we hope for. Constant belief in the gospel produces the change in our lives, the the life of our church, and our engagement in the world that we hope for. My big idea this morning is related to that spiritual dynamic, derived from it, you could say, and it is this. The love of Christ instantaneously creates a new people 
and perpetually controls this new people who live as missionaries. The love of Christ instantaneously creates them. They are made alive in Him, in one moment, through faith. And it perpetually controls them as it produces the kind of life that we hope for. So we need more than merely just a one-time mental recognition that, yes, we are loved by God. We need an ongoing, abiding, full-of-life understanding of Christ's love that will control us and bear fruit in our life, in our church, as we engage as missionaries in the world. And that is what we mean by our spiritual dynamic here at New Life Church. Well, I want to illustrate that for you from the Scriptures. So if you would open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's about 90% of the way through your Bible or about eight thumb scrolls if you're scrolling through in your phone. I'm just kidding. It's way more than eight, but you'll get there eventually. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. Please follow along. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and rose again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The love of Christ instantaneously creates a new people and it perpetually controls them. Look at the opening words there in verse 14. It begins with, the love of Christ controls us. You are loved by Christ. You cannot hear it enough. Jesus loves you. This in a sentence is the good news. Yes, Christ died, rose again, and uh, for you to reconcile you to God, that is the gospel. Jesus loves you is the gospel. This is good news. You are loved by Christ. Now, the word order here in verse 14 is challenging. The love of Christ controls us. And it's challenging, yes, because the English leaves open the possibility for um, uh, it to mean our love for Christ is what controls us. It's difficult because our hearts are even bent toward that direction because then it depends on me to the degree and quality of my own love for Christ. I am controlled to live and follow Him. But it is not that way. The Greek grammar leads us to understand that it is Christ's love for us that controls us. One of the clues that this is in fact the correct direction of affection is found in what follows. He says, how do we know that Christ loves us? Because, verse 14, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, let me remind you why this little story of the death and resurrection of Jesus is so significant. In the beginning, God, His heart overflowing with love, created. He created humans to know Him, to walk with Him, to live at peace with Him, to delight in the love that He shares. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, believe a lie in the garden. And the the fundamental root of that lie is, God does not really love you. And so they eat the fruit, disobeying God, breaking relationship with God, attempting now to live life on their own, disconnected from God. And everything breaks. Not one piece of the fabric of creation has been left untouched and unbroken by sin. The Old Testament then, this first part of your Bible, goes on to tell the story of a God who reveals Himself to be abounding in faithfulness and in steadfast love. The same love that created is the love that pursues people, wooing them back. Time and time again, page after page, He pledges Himself to His people, not because of them, but in spite of them. He can't help Himself. And when you turn the page from the Old Testament into the New, you're introduced to this person, this person who is the son of Adam, that that disobedient first man. You are introduced to the son of Abraham, the father of blessing. You're introduced to the son of David, the king who would rule in perfect righteousness and justice. You're introduced to the son of God, the long-awaited Savior. This is the one who would pay the penalty for sin, who would remove the curse so that we might be reconciled to God again through faith in Him. He is the one that reveals God's love for us. It says in the Scriptures, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. Moreover, God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were His enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus lived the sinless life that no human was able to live, yet He died the death that we deserve to die and rose again that He might offer life to all who believe in Him. He's the one who died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. The first Adam sinned and all of his children inherit death. And Jesus now, operating as a new and greater, a second Adam, dies and rises, and all of his children inherit life. Through faith, this love of Christ instantaneously creates a new people, a people who will one day walk with God, delighting in His love as they were designed to in the beginning. Tim Keller articulates this story, the gospel, this way. He says, we are far worse 
than we ever imagined. And far more loved than we could dare to dream. Have you stopped to consider why would Christ love you? What would move him to give his life on behalf of you, his enemy? My daughter's storybook Bible attempts to answer this question when it says, and we were love, lovely because he loved us. You see, it was the uncaused love of God the Father that caused Him to send His Son, and it was the undying love of the Son that caused Him to willingly die in your place. And this supreme act of love changes everything. One has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. And when the Apostle Paul speaks of the word all in this verse, he is speaking of all people. The invitation is to all people. Christ's love is for all people. But don't speed read here. We're introduced to two categories of people. The first is a category of those who have died. But we are introduced to this new category. No longer is the Christian simply among those who have died, but now those who live. The question is not, did Christ die for you? That's a very important question. But the question is, did He rise for you? Faith in Jesus, responding to the good news that you are loved by Christ. means that you benefit from Christ's death and also His resurrection. Your identity has been uprooted from dead in Adam to alive in Christ. The love of Christ creates a new people. Notice the new purpose, then, that results from this new identity. That those who live, okay, that's the category of those living ones, those who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him. You died to yourself and your old ways with Christ, and you rise with Him to live for Him. But I suppose this begs a question here. Do you want to live for Christ? Do you even want to? Or do you want to live for yourself? Because if you want to live for Christ, then what should you do? Uh, we've got to get to work. We've got to get to work living for Christ. So much to do. And if you want to live for yourself, what is it that will transform you, that will awaken you, that will make you one of those who are living? We'll look back at the first words in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. What should you do? The love of Christ will control you. How will you be transformed? The love of Christ will control you. 
This is why this is our spiritual dynamic. This is how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. All of us, everyone here today, needs to start with the love of Christ. You are loved by Christ. That is the thing that will transform you from a dead person in Adam to alive in Christ. That is the thing that will now inform every, every act of life as you follow Him. The love of Christ both instantaneously is creating this new people, it's transforming our identity, and is perpetually controlling our activity. What does it mean then that the love of Christ controls us? How does that word make you feel? It is such a negative word today to be controlled by something. Well, here in this word, your translation, it might say it compels us or it constrains us. And the idea is literally it holds together. Things work as they should because of the love of Christ. There is a positive sense in which it constrains us. It it makes us do the right thing. And there's also, at the same time, a negative sense. It restrains us. It keeps us from doing the wrong thing. It's like the banks of a river or the lanes on the road that you drove to get here or maybe even your belt at Thanksgiving. It holds you together. It keeps things in place that aren't supposed to be free or wiggle. But it is so easy to be controlled by something other than the love of Christ, to be controlled by your schedule or your bank account or a peculiar doctrine or dogma, or your family, or your political allegiance. We are so easily tempted and quick to be controlled by something else because we forget that we are loved by Christ. We will never move beyond or mature out of our need to know to realize we are loved by Christ. Power for the Christian life begins there. Power for the Christian life stays there. The love of Christ controls us. Now, as Paul continues, he now illustrates for us what it looks like when the love of Christ controls us. He notes one specific shift that takes place. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. So when you are controlled by the love of Christ, you begin to see people the way that He sees them. Because the love of Christ led Him to die for all people, regardless of physical indicators, the same love now controls us. When was the last time that you went people watching. It's, it's kind of just a creepier version of bird watching, but when was the last time you went people watching? Maybe you remember the venue, the fair or something. What did you see? 
One of the things that I can't ever get past when I people watch is that every face is different. Even the doppelganger's faces are different. One of the things you notice is you notice, you notice the t-shirts people wear. Some of them are hilarious. Some of them are really nice. Maybe you notice skin color or hair color or height or weight. All of these physical outward things that you can see and observe. People watching is a great temptation to view people according to the flesh and a great opportunity to see people the way Jesus sees people. If you've been loved by Christ and the love of Christ controls you as it is intended to, then you may no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. To illustrate the extreme inconsistency of what is true of you, Paul uses Christ as an example. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we regard Him thus no longer. Why is that? Because our eyes have been opened to see that He is more than just a good teacher. He is more than what He appears to be. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the God-man, the one whose death and resurrection change everything. Yes, He's a good teacher, a good man, but He is much more than that. And in the same way, then, this has occurred in how we view all people. Yes, of course, there are tall people and short people, black people, white people, male, female, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat. Sure, yes, but the point is, they're much more than that. When the love of Christ controls us, we see people as they really are, created by God in His image with dignity, value, and worth. Every person is a part of the all who Christ died for. Every person has been invited to new life with Him. And so, controlled by the love of Christ, we see people as He sees them. Now, if, if that was all that changed, if that's the only thing the love of Christ controlled, that would be a big change. But there's more than that. The transformation that occurs in the life of the Christian is not limited to your eyes, but is holistic. Every part of life is changed and controlled by the love of Christ. There's not a part of life that is left untouched. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Just listen to the description of your new identity. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. When you believe that Jesus died on your behalf and rose to give you life, you become positionally in Christ. Okay, once you were in Adam and you get all that Adam gets, now you are in Christ and consequently you are alive. When Paul is speaking here of a new creation, he's not just talking about a new creature. I think we read it this way. As though all my old hurts, habits, and hang-ups have been fixed. It's kind of like the land of broken toys, and there are some toys that are more, more broken than others, and this one's kind of just cobbled together. It's, it's been fixed. What is happening here, I think, 
is that Paul is referring to all that is summed up in that story I told you a moment ago, the good news that you were created by God and he's coming again. The new creation is a person that is set apart, recreated for the new creation. When Christ returns, you are now one of his new creation people. It's more like the old identity of enemy of God has been replaced with child of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom that is coming, of the new creation that is coming. You belong and live for a day that is coming. And it's happened now. You were set apart as a new creation for the new creation. You belong to God. As such, then, you no longer live to yourself. You live to Christ. You belong to a new kingdom. You follow a new king. And the fundamental transformation that's happened is available to all who Christ has died for. So as a new people, we, we view all people as God views them. And it is in this sense that the love of Christ has both instantaneously created this new creation that then perpetually is controlled by Him to live for Him. Paul now turns to explain further what these new people are controlled by the love of Christ to do. We used to live for ourselves, now we live for Christ. What does that look like? Look with me at verses 18 here through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The love of Christ has created instantaneously in one moment a new creation. Now the love of Christ controls this new creation as it lives not to themselves but for Him. And they, they do this as they engage as missionaries. Verses 18 through 21 here zero in on the outward-facing life of the Christian, of this new creation. And there are two identities that are given to this new people. The first is that they are reconciled reconcilers. Yes, there's a hyphen between those. It's not one word. Reconciled reconcilers. They've been reconciled in order to reconcile others. And the second is they are ambassadors. Now look at his description of these reconciled reconcilers and consider how precious this thought is. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All of this is from God. All of it. 
We brought nothing to the table. We needed an identity transformation, not just behavior modification. And God has done it all. Previously, it was the love of Christ controls us. And now it's as though we're looking at the jewel of the gospel from another angle. We have been reconciled to God and given the ministry of reconciliation. It sounds like something that's happened at one point, the love of Christ. You've been loved by Christ at one point. You've been reconciled to God at one point. But both of these have now an ongoing action. The love of Christ controls you, and you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. This new people that the gospel creates have been reconciled to God, yes, at peace with Him, and exist to reconcile others. And so, as reconciled reconcilers, we will never outgrow, outmature our need to remember that we have been reconciled to God. Paul explains this connection between being reconciled to God and reconciling others to God further in verse 19. He says, that is, that's his explanation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Notice a couple of things. First, God accomplishes for us what we were unwilling and unable to do for ourselves. God was reconciling the world to Himself. He not only removed the grounds for being offended and overlooked it, He removed them altogether. He re removed the offense. He does not count our trespasses against us. So it means that once God's taken initiative, toward peace, initiative to remove the obstacle, there's no longer any need for humans to attempt to assuage His anger. Where there was once hostility and striving to please and appease God, there is now peace with God and delight in Him because He has done it. Now He's done it for us. And He stands ready to do it for others. He is reconciling the world to Himself. The significance here is that the work of reconciliation it begins with God and it ends with God. Its means is God and its end is God. So as reconciled reconcilers, yes, we invite others who are disconnected from God to delight in Him through Jesus. It's a picture of being reconciled. And we pray, expecting that God will in fact be active at reconciling others to Himself. Because reconciliation begins with God, reconciled reconcilers pray. The second thing that's significant here is that it means that Christ is God's agent in reconciliation. How does He do this? What is the means by which He is reconciled with people? 
It says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. As Christian read at the beginning of our gathering this morning, Colossians 1.20 highlights that the incarnate Creator is the one whose death enables reconciliation. Ephesians 2.16 helps us to understand that Christ reconciled us to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is significant because there is no message of reconciliation without, apart from, the message of the cross. As reconciled reconcilers, we engage those who are disconnected with God so they delight in Him through Jesus. We preach Christ crucified and Christ alone. There is no other name, no other Savior, no other cause, no other means by which people may be reconciled to God. Notice how these two effects of reconciliation in verse 19 are linked. It says, God was reconciling two two ongoing actions, not counting and entrusting. Not counting and entrusting. There is an ongoing human alignment with the mission of God that's happening here. By not counting, you have been reconciled to God, okay, brought square with Him. And here in this place, you start to see the world like God sees. You see people the way God sees them. You start to do the things that God does. You've joined the team. You're reconciled to the family. So you start living as the family. And here's what happens. Here in this space, God is entrusting the message of reconciliation, which requires ongoing faith in the good news that you've been reconciled. And so, reconciled reconcilers look back daily, constantly, remembering that God has reconciled them to Christ, or to Himself through Christ, and now they live in that. They walk in that as they reconcile others. Just as you need to continually drink of the love of Christ for it to control you, so you need to a perpetual awareness of God's kindness in reconciling you to align your heart and life with His. You've been aligned with Him so that you too engage in this work of reconciliation. The next description of this new creation's new identity may be more explicit. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The second identity of this new creation is that they are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. Now, there are at least three implications of what that means to be an ambassador for Christ, who is our King. The first is that we are sent by the King. The reality of being an ambassador is that you are a sent one. You are sent from your home country to another country where you represent the king. And it's in that new country you just merely live, engaged in the king's work. 
baked into the idea of being an ambassador is this idea that you are going. An ambassador doesn't stay at home, but receives the assignment and goes. You might recognize it. I want to read Jesus' final commission of His followers in the Matthew 28, and I want you to see if you can see ambassador language of a king sending his people out. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It sounds like an all-powerful king of the whole world sending his followers out as ambassadors to all nations. The one imperative here is sometimes lost in translation. The one imperative there in Matthew 28 is make disciples. The word go is describing how you make disciples. And it it has this meaning. It is an ongoing, continuous action. So you've got these ambassadors are sent to make disciples as they go, everywhere they go. This new creation has been sent by the king. The second implication of being an ambassador, we're sent by the king, we submit to the king. What is it that controls us? The love of Christ. Who do we live for? For him who for our sake died and was raised. Who gave us our position? All this is from God. We're exclusively about the king's work exclusively with the king's message. We're not about our work or our message or our pet cause. There's no part of life as a new creation that is outside the domain of the king of the new creation. So our whole life belongs to him. Our work, our relationships, our calendar, our finances, all belong to him. And so we submit to the king as his ambassador. The third is we represent the king. We were sent by the king. We submit to the king. We represent the king. This, a, the, a beautiful thing happens here for those who are reconciled to God and have been given the ministry of reconciliation. This is precisely what God has been doing throughout history. So as we engage with others who are disconnected to God to reconcile them to Him through Jesus, we are partnering with God. Verse 20 says that God makes His appeal through us. And chapter 6 begins with this beautiful phrase, working together with Him then. This is not some activity that's disconnected from your identity. This is who you are. This is not just another thing to do, another another one on the list. We have been reconciled to God in order to reconcile others with God. And our message is the same message that we received. Be reconciled to God. I want you to see the point here, because again, after all that, 
Sounds like, okay, I'm starting to populate my mind with things that I should start doing. Get to work at a couple of these things, okay? We're given another dose of the mysterious and breathtaking good news to keep us abiding in the love of Christ which controls us and has reconciled us. He doesn't, let, he doesn't move in now to, okay, here's all the things then that you start getting to work doing. He moves right back to the gospel. Look at 21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The means by which you were reconciled to God was that God gave to Christ something that was not His, your sin. And that God gives to you something that isn't yours, Christ's perfection, His righteousness. So consider again, stop again. And consider the immense kindness of God, the immeasurable love of Christ for you. You've not only had your sin removed and given to God's Son, no, in exchange, you've been given all the rights and privileges as God's child. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You were dead in your sin, now you're made alive in Christ. You were without God and without hope in the world, but Christ appeared. You were an enemy, but God adopted you as a son. All of this is from God. And it changes everything. How could that love not control you? How could you not live for Him? instead of yourself? How could you not represent Him in the world? How could you not implore your friends and family to be reconciled to God? How could you not engage those disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus? I'm sure now you're wondering what to do. We're at the end of a sermon. This is the application time, right? So get out your pen and your paper, and here are some things to start doing, okay? After all, this sermon is supposed to help you be better missionaries, okay? So here are four things that will help you be a better missionary. First, you are loved by Christ. Second, You are a new creation. Third, you are reconciled to God. Four, you are an ambassador. Your application is not to do more, try harder, be better. It's a human dynamic. The application is to apply this good news to your own life, to live as someone loved by Christ, to live as someone reconciled to God by Christ, to live as a new creation, to live as an ambassador. Those how-could-you-not questions I asked you a moment ago, 
now become populated with all kinds of ideas. The love of Christ was, how could I not? What would I do? Oh man, the love of Christ now controls me to live this new way as a new creation, as someone lived by Christ, as a reconciled reconciler, an ambassador. This is who you are. You go back to the love of Christ because it controls you. The checklist doesn't control you. We need the gospel. So your assignment is not to get doing, but to get being. Lean into these identities. Steepen them. Ponder them. Try them on for size. Walk around in them for a few days and see how it goes. Rejoice in them. Now, as you do, you might want some ideas. Okay, that's about the weight I'm going to put on this. Some ideas for how you might start the conversation with your neighbors because the love of Christ is controlling you to have a conversation. You might need an idea of how to actually have that conversation. And we have created a kingdom initiative full of ideas. Not the list that controls you, ideas to help you let the love of Christ control you. So you can subscribe on the Sunday Hub and that will be how the Kingdom Initiative serves and works in your life as just a tool to help you as the love of Christ controls you. But I do believe, we do believe, it is our spiritual dynamic after all, that as you grow into your identity as someone loved by Christ, alive in Him, you'll find yourself perpetually controlled by the love of Christ, fully alive as a new creation, partnering with God in reconciling others as His ambassador. And so would you pray, for, pray with me now that this would happen here in our church. Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning that we are loved by Christ. That we are reconciled to God through Christ. That we are a new creation in Christ. We delight in your love and praise you for all that you have done to make that possible at unspeakable cost to yourself. So now empower us, Spirit, bear gospel fruit in our lives that this message of reconciliation would not be bound by these walls, that this experience of the love of Christ would not be contained in this room, but that we would live as co-laborers with God who is in the business of reconciling the world to Himself. Would you help us? We pray this for the sake of of your church, for the sake of all that Christ died for. In Jesus' name, amen.